equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now Displayed with good intentions Welcome to 1 of 200, the independent politics and media podcast. We're here for another midweek episode. I'm joined by two special guests. You might have caught her on the live stream uh, for the election. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Jenny. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, and even special guest, sorry, Jenny, hasn't been on the podcast before. Um, really, really glad to have you on here. Uh, Dita, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, both of you. So, Jenny, you haven't been on as a co-host in this space previously. Uh, do you just want to give a quick rundown of where you kind of come at media and politics from? Yeah, sure. Um, that's fine. Um, I am, I suppose I consider myself to be an ex, an ex media slash communications person. So I was a journalist for quite a while. Um, and I used to work for a mainstream media outlet here in New Zealand <laughs> that I complained very loudly about anonymously online while I was working for them. But essentially, um, sort of where my career take my where my career has taken me is I've gone from journalism and communications into market research and advertising. So I sort of work on the other side of campaigns now, both digital and communications wise. And so I kind of sit, I guess, in the space as a person who works with a really broad range of clients, ranging from political and government to uh, commercial. And there is not that much of a difference between the two categories as someone in the digital space working advertising. So the messaging is very similar. And I think those links are what we're here to explore today and how that may have influenced or affected our election reporting. Um, As for politics, uh, obviously I'm a leftist. I wouldn't be on this podcast, I think. Uh, <laughs> I, what are you talking about? It's a centrist podcast. Sorry, uh, sorry. Yes. Uh, One 200 <laughs> New Zealand's preeminent centrist podcast. That's right. You. That's what it's called. Yeah. Cheers, Jenny. And uh, Dita, for people who might not have uh, seen your work, uh, where do you come at? Okay. Um, I'll give you a potted history because I don't want to bore everyone. But um, I really started my journalism career in um, at the Herald back in the day. It was the Business Herald. And I moved through to features and to general news. Um, and then I joined TVNZ and I was in and out of TVNZ for about 14 years, quite a long time, both as a reporter and then when I was too old and fat after having children because they don't really like women who look too old and fat unless you've been there the whole time, uh, moving into producing. And I finally left TVNZ when I was told I didn't have uh, good news judgment, which... I mean, honestly, but anyhow, I mean, maybe I don't have good news judgment. I don't know, but certainly I didn't for them. I felt so irritated by the endless denigration of news into something so stupid. And um, I was basically told this was during the time where Middle Eastern news was very big, which it is now, of course, as well, but it was in those years. And someone didn't say to me, you're putting too many towel heads on the news, But that's basically the tenor of what they were telling me. I worked for, I put the foreign news together and finally the full bulletin for the midday news when such a thing existed. Um, So that's what I was doing at TVNZ. I was told that Peter Williams didn't like my news judgment. Remind (laughs) where Peter Williams is now. Reality Check Radio. Incredible. Incredible, incredible. And in those days, Peter Williams was the most popular um, what do you call it? Not talent, but property in TVNZ. Like, you know, 
they'd do popularity contests and he would be miles ahead of anybody else. So he's really, in my view, squandered his, his good reputation. But anyhow, that's a whole other story, I suppose. Um, so I left there. I had no job. I thought, oh, stuff this. I saw the um, <laughs> the ad for Kim Hill's producer, to be Kim Hill's producer. So I went there to RNZ for three years. And then I just got sort of sick of producing. So um, I went back to business journalism where I'd started and I worked for the National Business Review. Also, of course, my husband, um, Ali, worked for TV3. So I really do have quite a good, you know, I have been through the lot apart from stuff. <laughs> uh, I've been through many. So, yeah, that's that's my background. Perfect. Thank you. I did say uh, feel free not to hold back. Uh, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so... I guess the, the thing that brought this particular episode together was a small discussion around the way that news had changed over the last couple of decades in New Zealand, and particularly the way that it has just seemed to become easier and easier for political lobbyists, if that's what you want to call them, or um, business lobbyists or just lobbyists in general, to drop copy into media spaces and have it reported as news, if not journalism. Um, and I guess the distinction I'm making there is the difference between a reported headline, so this thing has happened, and something that has the tenor of investigation. And it seems that uh, across that, uh, the scale of those two things, there's been a very clear shift, at least since I've been reading news, uh, which is for 30 years. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't think my memory is awry, and I don't think I've become significantly more progressive, and so I'm reading it differently. And there's this constant conversation around the undermining of newsrooms, uh, whether on a basis of funding uh, the amount of resource available, uh, the amount of time that journalists uh, have to spend on a particular news story, the crunch, uh, the lack of uh, employees in media companies, all driving this environment where if someone gives you something that looks like news, you're going to put it up because it's more efficient. You have to create copy. Yeah, I mean, in, the in theory, yes, but of course, the journalist's skill is to try and discern what is news and what isn't. And so a number of things have contributed, if I may say it now, I, I, you were leading to a question, I'm sure, but... Uh, <laughs> Look, it's your, it's your good news judgment. You, well, I mean, you knew exactly where I was going. Yeah, exactly. News judgment. I'd be on your show. <laughs> 25 years ago or so, 20 years ago, when I started at the Herald, you know, the business news section alone had about 12 to 15 journalists. And that's not including opinion columnists, its own sub-editor, blah, 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 blah. As time goes on, um, and I've seen this happen, wave after wave of redundancies in places like TVNZ where specialists were not were seen to be too expensive and too old for television. So they really got rid of a whole strata of great intelligence. And, and you know, journalism works very well when people have institutional knowledge of their rounds, of society. You know, I think there is a role for young people, obviously, and they understand many things that older people don't understand. But when you're talking about institutions like politics, like business, um, 
when you get rid of, I mean, TVNZ got rid of their business reporter. This was in one, you know, one fell swoop, got rid of their specialist health correspondent, their business correspondent, and so on and so forth. Um, and what you're left with is people who don't have time. In television, they certainly don't have time to really get to grips with the context of things. So that's a problem. Then they have they have a strange thing that happens in TV, I think, where they put people on desks who are not actually journalists. Young people. No. <laughs> um, yeah. So these people do, they sometimes sit there overnight. They they get things used to be through the fax machine now in the email. Um, they're not necessarily, you know, old enough or experienced enough to know what to do. By the time someone comes in in the morning, there's often no time, you know, on those morning shows. Well, that's a whole other thing. I mean, the morning show and the seven o'clock show used to be where people were held to account, especially the seven o'clock slot. And now um, they're infotainment. They used to train journalists. They used to be the training grounds. And now they're just sort of, and if anything, what's destroyed those shows is the influence of corporate propaganda that's come through you know there's so much advertorial on tv we don't even know the scope of it but it's absolutely rife through those two slots of can you give an example of that anytime you see an item that looks as though a company is doing a good thing oh i can think of one good thing patrick gower's show if you remember um he did a story about his the lady on the show karen did a did a piece about how the music in supermarkets drives her crazy and she did an interview that was kind of a, a funny interlude with the lawyer for countdown i i think that was a paid bit by countdown because they never give their people out unless it's it's very strategic they're typical supermarket operators I, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if they had paid for that for that or they'd done some kind of contra or something had happened in the in the back Ginny probably understands this more than I do about the advertising side of it but I just think that kind of advertorial is just right through so it's not only that they're picking up things from the the um, taxpayers union or this free speech union whatever or the act party you know minions but it's also company stuff it's just company stuff being pumped through all the time and so yeah you really need a honed journalist skill that is the one and only real genuine skill of journalism is to try and find is to discern what is news and what isn't and if you don't have people with experience you have less of that this is something that really was incredibly clear during the election campaign around national parties tax policy where and you know media watched a piece on this because basically everyone in the gallery just wrote reported on it wholesale as if it was doing exactly what the National Party said it was going to do. Like, oh, this is a great way to try and take Labour voters by offering tax cuts to poor people, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then Craig Rennie went and did the work on it. Um, and suddenly it was, oh, why, do, why does the public listen to politicians anyway? It was so blatant. The They turned on a dime to in regards to the way they were reporting on it? I think in, in television, certainly, there's a there's a lingering feeling, and it was even there when I was there, that anything coming from unions, unions and anything coming from the Greens is slightly kooky, offbeat, because the people that populate news management strata are well-off people with houses in the Auckland Isthmus who, you know, they're homeowners, they're mortgage payers, or they might have paid it off. They don't have the same concerns as as people who are facing, you know, genuine hardship. They don't. So they look at it through their own lens. And, um, yeah. It was one of the um, 
yeah, I guess this is something which I'm, I get quite antagonistic about uh, with other people in the media um, around bias in these spaces. Because I was like, okay, look, overall, there's this bias, like right-wing bias. And by that, I tend to mean like pro-corporate, pro-business lobby. And then the pushback is, but most uh, reporters and journalists are young um, and liberal-leaning. But that doesn't account for this management strata that you're talking about, who make the decisions around who is in these positions to start with um, and the way that stories are being uh, decided and the, the framework for them. That's right. So, for example, if you have a mortgage rate announcement or, you know, that kind of thing, that takes precedence over anything. If you're a homeowner, you are the top of the pyramid when it comes to what is considered to be Heartland New Zealand interest, unless you're a sports star. If you're a rugby player, <laughs> you might also, you know, have your time in the sun. But certainly anything to do with home ownership is just right up there. And th it's those kind of things. It's not that they're anti-left or pro-right. It's just that they have that very bourgeois way of looking at the world. And that's has more and more infused TV, TV news, certainly. But I think even RNZ, I don't know if you've listened to it recently, but it's all about bloody sport. And it's just, I don't know what, what they are doing there. I feel RNZ has really taken their eye off the ball a lot. Just my view. Jenny, I know you've kind of worked in this space around uh, advertising and house, or, pro or I guess property advertising <laughs> in particular. Do you want to give us like a rundown how that works alongside this, I guess, decision-making uh, aspect? Absolutely, I can do that. Uh, so I, as I said before, used to work for a mainstream media outlet. Um, since I used to work for NZME, it's whatever, it's out there now. People know about it. <laughs> it's on my LinkedIn, so it's whatever. <laughs> Um, I used to work for them, um, and so I worked um, in the digital arm um, for a while of what I think is what used to be Harold Holmes, what is now One Roof, which they acquired years ago when I was still a property lawyer. And essentially, I would say that this management strata thing, um, there are so many on-flow effects, um, especially in a specialist, journalistic area. So the Harold, obviously, sorry, Harold Holmes slash One Roof, they're not just a property listing side they obviously produce their own news um, and that news gets cross-pollinated with um, the business section of the New Zealand Herald and sort of throughout all the other columns um, on the website and one thing I'm going to say about the process by which I think news items are selected or commissioned for publication by a specialist arm like One Roof it's almost exclusively farmed out to a freelancer. So there was like maybe there were probably one or two editors who were, as Dita said, like longstanding, um, I guess, institutionalized reporters on the subject matter of property in New Zealand. And the rest were just farmed out to freelancers who I would probably say maybe didn't have all that much experience or investment themselves in the area of knowing about local property, first of all, and maybe also not that much experience doing um, what I would call considered investigative long-form reporting. I know that no one is reading um, One Roof uh, for particularly hard-hitting journalistic pieces <laughs> about things like mortgages, for example. But I do think that um, long-form journalism um, on the whole at the Herald 
not just within that department, was really on the decline already when I was working there, maybe like two years ago. Um, and definitely the work that was being edited and the mandate as someone who was set in on the editing process myself, because I managed the website portion of it going up on the site and things like that. Uh, the mandate for an editor was potentially not so much one concerned with have they covered all their bases, asked all the right people about this particular topic. It was have we got the keywords in there to get people to click on this article when it goes up, for example? So, and these are choices that were made at a level, obviously above the journalist. You know, we would have we would have meetings so often about what the overriding agenda would be uh, for the site, and the agenda would just be really generally stuff that gets more clicks, more eyes, more people clicking on the advertorial aspect because that's what makes. Most of any modern news site, I think nowadays, it's money. It's people clicking on ads and selling ad space. Mm. So there has been a real, even when I sort of first started, I was there for about two years. When I first started, I would say that I didn't, there was still, I don't want to say hope, um, but there was definitely a slightly more involved editorial journalistic process when I first started versus 24 months down the track. And I would say we sort of saw this happen in real time. I think most people that work in online journalism would agree with me, whether it's tech or video games or music or pop culture or property even. There's been a real shift and a real push in the past 24 months, two to three year period, where suddenly it's almost like companies are waking up to digital advertising and they're going, this is the next big thing. That's how we make all the money. Forget about covering stuff with any particular degree of accuracy. What's important is a headline that gets clicks. And that sort of journey uh, that the Herald has taken over time has been accelerated, I think, for me in the past two years. Can I just jump in here and say that I cover NZME as a media reporter for NBR. And the one time I got feedback from the Herald over a story I'd written was when they were so pleased with me. Well, that sets the bells ringing for a start. But mm -hmm. they were happy because the story I'd written was about their amazing tech stack that in which they embed advertising in stories in which mm -hmm. data is shown back to the newsroom so that they can adjust the editorial decisions. As I was writing, I was going, oh, my God, this is fucking terrible. I can't believe that. They yeah. bring me up and say, or someone says to me, I can't remember how it happened. Yeah. It was Jenny. Jenny called you. <laughs> <laughs> so great oh my god we're so happy with your story it's like no self-respecting journalism yeah. organ would say such a thing but these people are not journalists they're managers you yeah, know exactly and they're not they've got so it's so far removed there's brilliant journalists at the Herald I do believe that but they're so far removed from where that or that publication is going it's just mm. insane and that probably is happening in many other publications as well not just the Herald yeah it does feel like there's been a pretty significant shift. And I think we probably saw this first in games journalism, Jenny, because um, we used to talk about it a lot when you were still in that space uh, yeah. and the way that they manipulated SEOs and like just created SEO farms essentially yeah. around uh, particular properties. And I just mean IP there, not uh, houses. Um, <laughs> yes. But, and as you say, like that, it, it has shifted to the wider media space over the last little while and I don't think a lot of these people know what they're getting into but you know you mentioned um and this is something I've said previously as well um in my own defense as a, a media antagonist I think we're heaps of fantastic journalists and reporters in New Zealand I think we've got incredible talent here but it's almost like 
a lot of our media outlets uh, have bifurcated into two separate organs. Uh, one which is trying to do this this digital thing, drive clicks, uh, drive uh, use that to drive advertising and getting caught up in the numbers in ways which I think are incredibly toxic and harmful to their overall business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got the kind of desert island uh, with rapidly rising uh, oceans around it of these journalists who want to go out and do good work and just don't have the resource to do it. And also being asked, uh, being asked in the right word, uh, having the separate framework work put alongside their reporting Mm. that integrates it with it in the digital space um, and I would argue undermines the integrity uh, of that work. Absolutely. They're getting nudged in that direction. I mean, I think all all journalists or certainly um, at the Herald and TVNZ, people were had to be mindful in morning meetings of what was rating well. And I mean, even that in itself is controversial for older journalists. It should, that should actually has no bearing on what a journalist should choose. I mean, that sounds like an incredibly antiquated view now. <laughs> it's ludicrously antiquated. You have values? <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, even NBR, okay, we don't do advertising, we don't do any advertorial, we don't do anything like that. We don't take any government money, we're completely independent and we don't do advertising. But even we go, oh, a story about Eric Watson, you know, is a sexy story for a business audience. They love knowing what Eric Watson is up to. So, you know, we might be inclined to cover an Eric Watson story, but it's not like having the numbers showing at you and we don't know what the numbers are, the, the editors do. But, you know, these people, I think, in the Herald are showing what is being clicked on and are expected to sort of, you know, bear that in mind in the editorial decisions. Well, this is... You know, if you're a, I guess what passes for a sub-editor um, or in that space, if you're if you're working the website, how long ago was it? Maybe a couple of years ago, we had Hayden Bennell on, who's now with Media Watch. Um, and the title of the episode, I think, was Green Arrow Goes Up because they'd see the stuff in real time. They'd say, okay, what's what's farming well? Okay, yeah. push that up the up the website. Uh, remove that one, put this one in. The pe- So the people deciding what is on the front page do have those numbers live. Uh, more or less, um, and are making decisions based on that. But that's an imperative that comes from further up the chain as well. Like, get the stuff that's getting clicks, get the stuff that's getting um, views and people aren't bouncing off too quickly. I guess in the case of properties like NZME, when they have multiple spaces, I guess, in in, in digital, it's what is getting people onto one roof from the New Zealand Herald site? Because now you keep creating a feedback loop um, and the number goes up it seems to be the the driving force behind that, but it doesn't always like then work its way into actual ad sales, though, does it? So I'm just going to talk about this very briefly uh, because I would literally, this is quite funny, I would literally have a dashboard I would look at that had green arrows on it that would go, <laughs> they would point up if an ad had done particularly well. And so in terms of this ad, self-service ad system that Dita just mentioned that the Herald has popularized um, since. Uh, it is possible when you are clicking on, when a, you're an editor at the Herald and you're looking at a dashboard of ads across the business, you can see where people have, the journeys people have taken within your properties to get to a particular place. So I could see, for example, if someone's clicked on an ad for Flight Center or some travel company on the Viva side of enemies digital presence like I said, they, they might have come from the travel section or lifestyle or business or somewhere else and so there's a way for an editor 
or a web person to see the path that someone takes with multiple properties owned by one company. Um, and we, there is, there was at least when I was still working there, um, there was a real concerted effort um, from the people that work in digital ads um, for NZME to make sure to create what they call an encompassing customer journey. So a string of ads and experiences that would pull you from one property on owned by the hell to another property, for example. So that would that could be things like um a travel uh, an ad on the travel section um that had a particularly nice visual image of a villa in Bali. Um and then you would have this ad ostensibly be actually an ad that had been purchased by a travel company but um purchased via one roof. And then clicking on this ad would bring you through to a landing page made by one roof which would have a bunch of other villas in New Zealand beaches on it alongside an entry page for this ad and this go to Bali competition. So there was a whole effort to kind of make a holistic, what they called a holistic experience for a viewer who would take you from ad to page to ad to page throughout various properties owned by NZME. So ad sales are definitely in, uh, in consideration in terms of the customer journey. Yeah. That Crazy. seems yeah. really bad. It, it's not great it's not a great way to it's not a great way to I think run a business um in terms of getting people to trust that what you're producing is journalistic in nature if that makes sense I think if you're someone that gets used to navigating a site almost purely via shiny ad content then the draw of the meat of the words of, that they are hosted on the site kind of lose their appeal to you um yeah. so yeah so it's con- conditioning the audience as much as conditioning the business itself yeah Exactly. I, I would say so. Yeah. People did used to have to be taken through a publication, but they were taken through it by good news stories leading to opinion pages, leading to, you know, sport. And then maybe you get to your classifieds or whatever. I mean, it's the same process. You want a sticky customer who will stick with it. But yeah, it's done with negligible content or advertising, straight out advertising. Just, yeah. So that's, I guess we've got that kind of background framework for how a lot of news media is being presented at the moment. I don't, I don't think we get into social media kind of platforms because that's another sort of thing altogether. Uh, Even, even separate from uh, kind of news organizations dipping into it, I would say. But alongside that, you know, we're talking earlier in the conversation about the lack of capacity um, and the dwindling numbers of people available on the desk how do you think uh Dita that impacts the overall news space um you you mentioned that there were less specialists uh, but do you think it impacts kind of the the day-to-day as well um definitely I mean there is certainly it's absolutely true and fair to say there are more demands on journalists working today. I mean, when I was in the business, Herald, in the first iteration, I was the beer and wine reporter, if you can believe that. And I got to take, and in those days, I took junkets and I wasn't pressured to come up with a story every day. You know, you were, you still had to turn in some work occasionally when you were sober. <laughs> but, um, and sometimes not when you were sober, but you still turned it in. But I mean, now it's, it's, I just don't think people have that kind of freedom to just immerse themselves in things. So it changes the quality. It makes the newsroom more tense, I think, and more, more stressful. It's a more stressful environment, you know. Um, and people are tuning stuff through. I, I don't know any, I mean, MBR is, 
a very busy place. We've got a small team, um, but even in a bigger team, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, I think everyone is under that pressure. But that still doesn't sort of negate the responsibility you have to do to be journalistically true, in my view, and that has to be done from the top and filter through. And RNZ used to be very good at that. I think they really did have journalistic ethics in their very bones. Of course, at TVNZ, the mandate has been mixed. It's been commercial and public and this and that. And they've been quite hostile to their public mandate, TVNZ, you know, going back many years. I remember interviewing Marion Hobbs and she said when she'd go, after she introduced the charter, if I can bring that up, it's probably a bit dating me a little bit. But when she brought it up, people at TVNZ refused to talk to her. One high-profile host refused to shake her hand probably Paul Holmes or someone like that. Um, you know, they they just, they don't want their cosy kingdom to be disrupted by other mandates. And that's why I was, the RNZ-TVNZ merger, I just, having worked in both places, I just couldn't see how that was going to work, although I think it's a good idea in, in theory. But, yeah. Yeah, it does seem like, there are less people having to deal with just far, far more available information. Yeah. Um, now that we're in the now that we are, I like I mean it's such a silly thing to say, right? I mean, it's, it has been around for ages. We just haven't hasn't been the urgency to be reporting on everything at once as as there was, you know, ten years ago. Uh, and we really are. We, it really feels like we're in a period. Um, of accelerated history yes. at the moment. And I don't know how much of that is outside forces uh, telling us that we are, as opposed to, no, lots of big, horrible events really are happening all at once. I think it's that. I think it's that one. I, I think it's that, but it's just the immediacy of having social media there. And, mm. you know, you don't want to talk too much about social media, but that obviously drives, you know, people, a lot of journalists are on Twitter. They're looking at what is hot and what is not. And, you know, that's also influencing what goes on and being on top of every last detail and a website is a hungry beast as you know so you have to you know keep it refreshed all the time it's it's a full-on job definitely yeah i i i, I don't envy people in this industry at all <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like hell it seems like hell you know we're, we we do media stuff uh for one of 200 but it's on our own terms um yeah. if i don't want to record something one week uh, then I just won't. You know, there's no requirement for me to be locked to a screen making sure that the freshest news stories are at the top, um, that all the up-to-date information is in each of them, uh, and that all the ads are linked correctly. Mm. You know, it's yeah, it's uh, it's horrible. I, I would never want to do it. Yeah. It used to be a glamorous job, but there's no glamour in it now, that's for sure, not from what I can see. Not much. So... We've got this. We've got this framework, uh, digital framework that's been built out over the last little while. The the kind of ad space has been grafted onto that. We have media workers who uh, have too much work and not enough specialization in the areas they're working, and a management structure that often has completely different uh, goals from journalism. Uh, as a what do you call it ethos mm. and then alongside that we have I don't even know what to call the industry of astroturfing groups yeah, yeah. Um, whose entire 
Because I think it is, I think we have to say it is distinct from the advertising industry, which is is trying to plug into this as well. This is an influence industry, yeah, um, which includes lobbyists, um, big corporates, and political entities. Who so you can just kind of glom onto this because there's so it seems like there are so many gaps available for them to weasel their ways into. Well, I mean, I get for some unknown reason, and I really don't know why I did it, but I signed up to either the free speech or the taxpayers, one of them, just to see what they Got to keep track. Got to keep track. I keep track. And I get about, during the election, I, got, I swear to God, I got about 10 missives a day from those guys. And they're all the same guy. They're Jordan Williams and his his crew. Um, often complete nonsense and everything. But, but to do that quantity of astroturfing costs a lot of money and this is where it comes in that you know these these parties and their proxies on the right have just so much money and that's what I was trying to get at the other day when I was on News Hub which earned me legions of abuse but I mean it's not a conspiracy conspiracy to say that those guys just have a financial advantage and they are better at politicking and that's so they know how to put their people in place. And so everyone's working this kind of pincer movement against journalists or whoever, politicians even. That's what's going to happen, you know. They're going to get outsized influence because eventually people will take on some of their points, even if they don't sort of quote them directly or anything, you know. that It will infiltrate into the minds of people who are who are writing these stories, I think. Did you see, I mean, you're, you're in a different space now, Jenny. How do you think it compares to, uh, I guess, more broadly corporate lobbying and advertising and marketing when working alongside these media entities? I think that from a strategic point of view, I was always sort of like, at the Herald when you work on, well, at any big outlet that sells ad space, the people that deal with the buying and selling the ad space are extremely divorced from the actual bodies that are buying and selling the ad space. Like there'll be like a ticket that will come in down a long pipeline of 20 other people. And then you'll go, oh, this ticket happens to be from Hobson's Pledge or something. And you'll be like, oh, fuck, I guess, you know, sure, you know, whatever. But like you often kind of come in, I think, at a very, you're very divorced from A, the person, the party that makes that request and B or so, I guess, any, you you rarely ever actually see the copy or the full visual magnificence of the terrible shitty ad yourself. Um, but I think when you work, um, when you work, working alongside some of um, these groups that may have relationships with groups that are like this, not saying Hobson's Pledge, but groups that sort of like, I think, have a controversial or contrarian media presence, it's actually quite startling how much strategy goes into it from their end, from what yeah, I feel like it's easy as a someone, it's easy to look at an ad as someone who is an, I hate the word average, but an average consumer it's easy to look at an ad and just go, oh, that ad has shitty messaging or is racist or is clearly discriminatory in some way. That's just something nasty. But I think that discounts the fact that there is a whole machine of people constantly churning and deliberately creating this stuff and thinking really, sorry, fucking hard about this stuff all the time. Um, and I think that level of insidious strategy is often lost on the average consumer of media. And the one thing that I've learned since working in advertising is just how often people can make these decisions and say things like, you know, we just talked about how um, it's all about clicks, it's all about views, all about awareness. 
um, a lot of bodies now are saying stuff like that. Like orgs are saying, oh, it's all about clicks, all about awareness. You know, we're saying something inflammatory to get eyes on it, not because we believe in it. And that's kind of like disguising and couching these truly awful, horrific views and strategy that some of these bodies might actually have um, and are using to create this sort of avatarial material. So um, at least from an ideology perspective, it's been quite, it's been quite jarring. It's been a bit shit actually to, to kind of like have to see how the meat gets made by some of these people. Yeah. They also glom onto opportunity in a very fantastic way, really, a smart way, as you're saying, smart and evil maybe. But, uh, for example, when NZME rejected an ad from um, Stand Up for Women or whatever it's called, which just had adult female, adult human female, whatever it was, some, that, that dog whistling kind of language. Yeah. And the Free Speech Union glommed onto that and went to a meeting of shareholders of NZME and said, um, we want to get support for, um, you know, this ad to be run because it's, it's you know, RNZ is, uh, sorry, the Herald is not being um, fair to both sides of the story or something by not running this ad. Yeah. You know, I just thought it's it's awful and, and stupid. Um, but, wow, that's, that's quite a clever thing to do. And then they got, of course, media coverage from doing just that. Um, mm. So it's all very... Um, 5D yeah. chess that they're playing <laughs> and they are ahead because they've got this money and influence yes. and understanding from overseas they're miles ahead of what and New Zealanders are quite complacent about these things and sort of yeah we we meant to return New Zealand exceptionalism on this podcast quite a lot um it's really a thing we we are we are about a decade behind on a lot of the stuff political and media and despite being able to have that hindsight foresight People just think it couldn't happen here. Like, oh no, it won't happen quite the same way. We're not. We we run differently, you know. Um, something I hear a lot is, oh, but we don't have the Murdoch press here, which is just a ludicrous thing for yeah. me to hear. It's as if the nature of media under neoliberalism won't drive you in a similar direction, regardless of who owns your property. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, Murdoch is like an outlier, you know, and especially in a place like the UK. And it's incredibly nasty stuff, but that doesn't mean that the systems and frameworks won't naturally head in that direction under a similar set of systems and frameworks. I think this is one of one of the, a very clear example um, of the way that these uh, these astroturf groups are able to do a similar thing in New Zealand as they do in the UK. You yeah. know, like Jordan Williams is the president of the Taxpayers the Global Taxpayers Alliance. Yeah. Like, you know, we we say it's not a conspiracy, but some of this some who was it the other day was quoting Parenti, maybe? You know, sometimes people just do meet in a room and coordinate yeah. uh for a political purpose. Yeah, yeah. But it's uh, not a conspiracy. And but you're accused of being a conspiracy theorist if you say My oh, argument God. is that it is a conspiracy, but some conspiracies happen. Yeah. Um like they're actively trying to do a thing and they're doing it. They're coordinating yeah. out of the public view and then saying, oh, no, the FSU and the TPU are distinct. <laughs> but, we, but we know that there are people who work across all those properties. Oh, my God. And, you know, the the, case, the example that you gave is a, is a really good case in point where you see parts of the story emerge as news items. So the fact yeah. they went to the shareholders meeting, but that really is a, or, you know, the Hobson Pinch uh, example you gave, Jenny, it really is the tip of the iceberg. There's all this work and money and other effect on the discourse that's happening below the surface. And sometimes it's really easy to go and find that stuff. Uh, And sometimes they appear in your social media as a whole bunch of name string of numbers. 
uh, yeah. you know, pushing the, the same line or, or dropping those links uh, into your timeline. Yes, I, I noticed, um, you know, I was called a conspiracy theorist when I simply mentioned on News Hub that the right have more money and they use it more effectively. Which is, <laughs> which is a statement. Like, is that a conspiracy? No. And then I went to interview David Seymour just the other day about, um, you know, this three-headed hydra that's going to become uh-huh. a government and why he hadn't had a call from Winston Peters and stuff. And I said, one of the questions I asked him was, are your aims and views any different from the wealthy people that fund you? And he said, well, I I hope you're not a conspiracy theorist. Conspiracy theorists, um, you know, come up with conspiracies when they haven't got anything good to think about, that kind of thing. And so I thought, yeah, that's really infiltrated the discourse. And that's gaslighting, basically. Absolutely. And I I think you're right. There are two different meanings of conspiracy being used here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one is, oh, we can just brush this off because this person is just, they're crazy. They're, yeah. what, you think people give me money and I have to do something that they say? That's, <laughs> that's insane. It's like, no, I think that's actually how the world works a little bit. Um, people don't give you money for nothing. It's yeah. it's bizarre or it's absurd to say the opposite. It's absurd to, to claim that someone might be a conspiracy theorist for querying whether or not... Uh, the, the people giving you millions of dollars might have an undue influence on you. I, yeah. You know, there's a politician should answer that question instead of having a, a go-to uh, snappy answer, well, the aim of which is an ad hominem. Like the, yeah. the whole purpose of that is to be aimed at the audience. However, I think some politicians, you know, you're saying this is just a normal questioning with him, have taken it to heart themselves. They really believe this stuff. Mm. Um, you know, they they believe that, people who question them are conspiracy theorists somehow because they say it even in private, but it's not always aimed at the audience. Yeah. I don't know. I thought David Seymour was a bit, you know, to me, he's not a stupid man at all. You know, he's pretty smart. But I, I found it really odd that he would go on the attack like that in front of all other journalists. We're all doing a stand-up. I just thought that was a, an odd. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a signal, right? It's a, And you've seen him do some similar things on Maori media and – when he's questioned about something which is uncomfortable for him or is uncomfortable uh, politically um, or that he thinks will be of disadvantage to him, uh, his immediate uh, response is to, okay, how do I undermine this question or the questioner so that I don't have to answer this? Um, yeah. Did he answer your question? No. Okay, I mean, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the purpose was, did anyone else ask him the question after you had? Um, no, I mean, what this again sort of maybe points up what we're talking about. The TV journalists that are there, some of them are brilliant journalists, but they're there to find out, did Winston call you back? Did Winston call <laughs> you You know, and I think one thing that has happened over time is that political news has gone down the shitter. And that is because um, political news wasn't generally ever considered very sexy to a gen- to the general news editor. I remember when I was at TVNZ, unless you were chasing someone down the hall, beating them overhead with a microphone, or calling someone gay, or finding out someone's love affair, or something like that, they just were not interested. In. And TVNZ political editors used to be told, be like Paddy Gower, be like Duncan Garner, do that kind of thing, and then we'll put you in, you know, we'll put you at the top of the rankings, because in the old days, all the journalists wanted to be in the, you know, first few news items. But when I was there, Corin Dan was the editor of the Political Gallery, and he's a very considered journalist. He doesn't do that kind of sensationalist nonsense. And so, you know, 
what I saw was a sort of a downgrading of his content because it wasn't Duncan Garner running, huffing and puffing up up the corridor. <laughs> you know, it wasn't wasn't that. You can really see the way that I don't know if evolved is the right word, devolved, devolved. Um, perhaps, yeah. um, or at least infected the the rest of the press pack and in, in the gallery, like just. You know, after the election, when they're all chasing Damien O'Connor to the bathroom, I know, I know. Just, I couldn't believe it, but it, it really, it does just seem like a cultural thing within that subsection of the media. Yes, that's right, and that's what the editors expect, I think, now more and more. So that's what they get delivered. But sadly, it really does a, a real injustice, I think. Too, I mean, people should always be asking at the moment, why is the why is it taking so long to to come up with a government of New Zealand? But that seems to be almost a secondary question too. Did Winston call you back? Is Winston asking for you? Is you know, did he snub you? Did he? Did he call you a puck on the phone again? Yeah, he's just appalling as well. So you know, the whole idea that someone like that would be here after cynically targeting yeah. the, you know, the vote that he did is just it's just repellent. But anyhow, do you think that the nature of political journalism? Um, becoming like that is is separate from the other issues we've been talking about, or is it is it very clearly connected in in some ways that you're aware of? I think it's absolutely connected. It is the issue you're talking about. It's the sort of the dumbing down and sexing up of news. And I mean, another thing that happened at TVNZ, I think, is that we got a lot of American. Um, sort of experts and consultants come in and tell us how to emote properly and how to do this and that. No. And, you know, I think you may remember at a time at TVNZ where all women had blonde straight hair, and I say that as someone with blonde straight hair, but, (laughs) you know, because curly blonde hair was seen to be not believable. So all women had their hair straight and there were certain haircuts that everyone seemed to have. You know, this was all the result of consultants coming in. Instead of using the BBC as a model, which I think we probably should, or Al Jazeera, someone like that, all these American consultants came in and God knows the things that they, you know, the things that they implemented were just nuts in my view. But, you know, what do I know? But (laughs) (laughs) I had the right hair. (laughs) You didn't have to worry about that. (laughs) Is that something that you see... uh kind of that wider lobbying space as well, Jenny? Like, because there are different types of ways to approach consultants, right? But that seems like (laughs) I don't have words. Yeah, I mean, I I am really on the procurement decision end of consultancy, Um, but I I can name a couple of things, I suppose, that people do talk about um, or things that clients that engage the firm that I work at talk about when they go oh you know we're, we're coming to you for this particular this particular brand or, or type of uh, consulting service and um not to not to reuse I guess that same concept but a part of it is because the firm has a particularly has a particular aesthetic right not quite blonde straight hair but you know in the modern day we sort of see things like a quirky editorial website that looks like it should be a fashion brochure as opposed to a site that tells you what people do, for example, you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, things which people go, oh, your um, your firm seemed really eye-catching uh, or really interesting, or we really were kind of confused by what you did, but then your prop <laughs> explained the whole thing. So that was great. And I'm going, is that a 
really a plus like to sort of have your first brush with a potential client be one of sheer confusion but I think it sort of speaks to the attention span of the decision makers in this sort of wider space, right? It's like for something that I think is for them. I think they want to make. We always get requests for how to make a brand more impactful, right? how, how to make a part? brand. It's not. It's not. It's rarely ever make a brand more meaningful or make the message translate better. It's always how is the how can we convey the same dead messaging for the past 20, 30 years, but in a more impactful, eye catching way. And I think that this focus on aesthetics from the from the from the people that I guess make the decisions around hiring consultants, that expresses all that goes all the way through, whether it's a news organization or an outdoor apparel brand or an FMCG brand. I think they all kind of want the same thing. And I think this sort of comes from a change in attention spans of consumers. Like we want to see, they think that well, they don't think that they know that consumers enjoy things that are eye-catching, punchy colorful, short, don't require too much critical thinking. Consumers like to consume. And I think that consultants nowadays are being, at least some companies select them on the basis of who can make who can make my company the most consumable, uh, the most desirable to consume. Then how can someone make my brand more meaningful or impactful to someone in a social way? Yeah. By consume, do you just mean click on? Yeah, click on. I just mean click on. I literally mean just click on. <laughs> just click on. Wow. Is it? I guess this is probably the last broader issue I want to discuss in that space. Then is this this directly? Do we think this directly impacts media trust? Because this is something that I mean, I'm going to obviously yes, it does. But you know, we've seen these numbers dropping like in free fall for the last twenty years, and you're saying you know people aren't coming to consultants or to organisations to ask how do we make this more meaningful. It seems there's a very clear connection there. Um, I think so. Um, at least just from my perspective, um, work that we do with government adjacent clients suffers from the same issue. We do get asked um, in terms of delivery, how to make something more visually engaging or appealing. Like words like appealing, engaging are used as opposed to words that I think imply that the organizational stakeholders want people to engender greater trust in that brand, for example. Um and I think part of that is also because, and this might just be because I'm in the consulting advertising space, but there's a concerted effort, I think, in the consultancy advertising space to, it's in our best interest to to make companies feel like they need us, right? <laughs> and so lots of, lots of consultant agencies will develop what they call a supplementary material, like you know how McKinsey has, Google has the messy middle of marketing or something, which is complete bullshit. And then McKinsey has their own way of looking at the world, which is like, this. here's why you need McKinsey's 12 cultural principles to understand how advertising works. When you really generally don't, right? It's all common sense, all stuff. Like if bright human eyes like, like it's very, very simple, basic stuff, but it's always like packaged up in a way to kind of like, I guess, sell your firm as like a full service firm. It's make a firm seem more appealing. And so I would say that recently there's been a sort of a small push um, and we're talking, I don't just mean, you know, the McKinsey's of the world or the Baines, but like firms like Cantar 55 that are, I think have a more reputable research uh, reputation have also kind of given into this sort of stuff recently. And it's basically identifying the problem of a lack of trust in media and then sort of sort of working with brands to fix it going, here's how we can explain this with our cultural research data. Here's why you need to use us to understand why brands don't trust you or people don't trust you, as opposed to here's how we can help your org fix this trust problem. Um, 
And I think that there's definitely a, a cycle, like a loop created there, whereby there's a problem which we've identified, which is a, a lack of, a horrible lack of trust in media. Media companies, instead of sort of reflecting, go, oh, how can we fix that? They turn to consultants who then go, here, it's high impact stuff that will really fix your brand's perception. And then just skate over the trust stuff completely. And these packages, you know, and firms will go from consultant to consultant. Like it's not rare for like a media company like NZME, for example, to go through maybe three or four and spend a three or four years because they want three or four different opinions. Um, but they're just all going to say the same thing in slightly different ways. And there'll never be any fundamental effort made to address the trust problem because that's what keeps these consultancy firms in business, right? Like if we fix the trust problem, then there is no more like, what do we do now? Like it's just, it's a money-making endeavor for a consultancy, right? So I think we do perpetuate this loop and the industry does create this loop and maintain this loop quite judiciously and purposefully. And I guess even if it's a, here's the research and handing it back to the company knowing that they won't act on it effectively, right? Yeah, yeah. Happens all the time. Um, I think a lot of the time as well, consultants, especially for, like I said, government entities, government entities will often have multiple consultants engaged because they want a broad point of view. And there will always be, you'll know that if they pick three or four, they have different viewpoints. They're going to go with only one in the end, right? So you're the rest are just kind of doing what that would just be presented and not acted on. And sometimes it's quite obvious to kind of tell who the odd duck is going to be in that group. Like if you're like the one company that's got like sort of like a left-wing agenda, but the company that you're consulting for is like the CEO would vote act or something. Like you can tell when your work is going to be the lame duck in the group and it kind of sucks shit, but you're still <laughs> going to do it and contribute to that discourse, right? And then that will get picked up by someone else that they work with and put through someone else, so on and so forth. And regardless of why the work gets commissioned or how it gets used, it's still being created and pushed out and pushed out in a way that sort of like removes any kind of agency from consultancy in terms of how that work gets used. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you would have seen this happening in real time data. I mean, if you're talking about the reasons for the lack of trust in media, is that yeah. what you're asking me? I think there's a number of things going on here. I mean, for a start, legacy media that's gone on for a while didn't really care to bring in young people. It didn't. It kind of, um, the Herald was always, you know, middle-class, middle-aged kind of audience. They haven't cultivated young audiences. In the meantime, social media has happened. And I mean, the top sites in New Zealand are YouTube, as you know, Facebook, Google, whatever. And TVNZ is up there for advertisers, say, at number four or five. But it's not where most people spend their time. And then you've got these astroturfing groups that have kind of chipped away at trust. So they've chipped away at it, chipped away at it. And a lot of media has just played into their hands. And I think that, you know, that doesn't matter for a private company. But for RNZ and TVNZ, these are taonga that belong to this country. And they actually have to be better. They, they shouldn't be falling for this kind of stuff. They should maintain their standards. Um, I think... NBR, and I, I don't mean to do endless plugs for NBR, but how they've maintained <laughs> how they've maintained their brand into its 50th year is they've never, you know, you have to, they have no advertising, no editorial, and you have to give audience more, you know, you, there's no dumbing down that goes on at all. It's all, and in fact, they've recently got rid of all their opinion columnists. So it's only news. Incredible. news written by senior journalists mainly. So, I, you know, that's easier to do in a small thing than it is in a big thing. But um, there are ways of doing it. I think the Herald has shot its credibility, to be honest. It's destroyed its trust and reputation. 
and um or well, NZME yeah. as a whole really it's it's tragic because there are so many good people there doing amazing work but the brand is just tainted it's just yeah it's it is an untrustworthy brand i think when you're pushing people like mike hosking's views to the front um yeah it's, why it's do not- you think that's how it's ended up right? with the benefit of hindsight and kind of working through the years and in, in which this has happened because Hosking really is NZME to a large extent at this point. Yes, he is, yeah. Um, I think it's because non-journalists made the decision to kind of meld the the radio celebrities with the, the news offering. And, you know, I think at the beginning that would have seemed amazing and he would have been clicked on a lot and you're creating all these properties over many platforms and everything and that would be great. But ultimately it denigrates the news side of it. It just It just cannot help it if you're constantly pumping out that stuff that will definitely take precedence over news. Um, And that's why our publisher got rid of opinion because he thought that it's, you know, it's actually taking away from the the quality of the news product to be pushing opinion to the front. And, you know, it was very popular. We had Duncan Garner, was very popular columnist for us, Um, but he just said no more. And we, we continue to work to maintain the quality of the business news and it's not sensational at all you know but then we do get people to pay quite a bit of money for it so (laughs) it's a different model yeah absolutely what um do you think there's any way out of that now that opinion i I think it's commentary more than opinion at this point right like yeah uh because it it doesn't feel like someone like hosking really has opinions almost yeah no it's just a stream of consciousness you know really um poorly written i mean i remember paul holmes used to frequently win uh columnist of the year at when he was at the herald and when his copy came in my goodness uh yeah needed quite a bit of work so i don't know i i think there is too much opinion people say that and i think that's true um analysis is different and that should be what is sought rather than anyone's reckons and i say that as an opinion columnist of many years you know nobody needed to really read my opinion and i yeah is there a way out of it? Um, Sorry, huge question. <laughs> solve it for us. Solve it for us right now. Fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I think ring fencing the quality and getting back to the basics of why you do the job, and especially as a state-owned media company with a public mandate, you have you have you should have completely different drivers. I mean, RNZ generally have the right drivers, and the BBC, I think, does, although I can, I know that they are a little bit compromised in some ways, but, you know, they have it in there, but everything is interesting, informative, and hard-hitting, really. Even, even the fun stuff, even the lighter stuff, you know. Um, to me, they have the right DNA to, to be doing what they do, so you have to find that DNA again. And, I mean, NZME has moved into that NZME Plus platform of extreme right-wing commentary, and it was revealed oh today. Oh my god, that's so and, yeah. bad! And it was revealed today that they had NZME has met with the Wright family and Sean Plunkett. Yeah. About ways that they can, um, you cross know, pollinate. cross pollinate. I my god, do you want to destroy the the Herald, you know, brand anymore? Can can you do any any more? I'm I'm not sure that any more can be done. That would be more damaging than that. Yeah. Um, that um, NZME Plus was just, it's the weirdest thing to see that propped up and created out of a series of so-called scoops uh, mm. around the the man heading it up and then turn into a paid product with just some of 
who I would call the most awful people in, New- in the New Zealand media space. Uh, I'm glad it's behind a paywall. Um, I'm glad it's not going to be like immediately tapping on to Mike Hosking's 500,000 listeners or whatever he gets. Um, because at least his is just, as you say, a stream of consciousness garbage. You know, you put it on in the background. It's it's elevated noise. Yeah. Like, and you know, and that's not to say that it's not impactful and it doesn't get narratives and discourses uh, embedded in the New Zealand psyche or whatever you want to say. Yeah. But I don't think it has the the level of nastiness that some people in the organisation are capable of. Yeah, well, that's why they're going more extreme, right? That's why um, Reality Check Radio, the platform, NZME Plus, I mean, they're having to go further because even Hosking's brand of idiocy is not far enough for them. Yeah, and like my my feeling is that it's that's a decision-making, like it's at a, a management level that decision is being made. Because I just don't think you'd have audience numbers or um, extrapolations that would show that that would be a good property. Yeah. I mean, who, who's going to pay for that? I don't know who would pay. I mean, somebody is paying the platform, I presume, and radio check, reality check radio. But, um, yeah, I, I don't It's They're just trying to get in on something they think is, is popping off. But in doing so, it's, again, people with who are not journalists making that decision and bringing the brand down from the inside. It's tragic. Oh, well, I hope they fail miserably. Um, and then, you know, maybe maybe something can shift. Um, what about the other spaces, uh, more like RNZ or TVNZ? How do you think, other than just ring fencing, I mean, how do you get them to the point where they want to go back to kind of news ethos? You don't wait for them to want to. You have a minister, and I think Willie Jackson was heading in that direction, but I don't know if he really ever did it which is like, get rid of all advertorial on this channel. We will take the hit. You can do whatever you like on the other channels, but channel one should be pure news and, you know, maybe not educational is a bit much, but you know what I mean. I think also they should go back to a harder seven o'clock program where people are held to account Mm -hmm. and they should be funded to do that. I think people want to see it personally. I do. I do. I think yeah. like the inability to hold power to account is a major part of uh, disenfranchisement and uh, erosion of trust. Absolutely, yeah. Because um, it's the only place where you can really build trust as a news agency, I think, yes. other than just like getting it right all the time. Um, and I think that's a lot harder. But also it's it's contributed to the idea that the Labour Party's been given a free ride by the press because that kind of weaned out when Jacinda Ardern during Jacinda Ardern's time in power, um, that kind of, it completely left. And I think that was a shame. They should be held to account as much as anyone else. They all should be. And that that used to happen, you know, every single day, every single weekday. It's hard to believe now. It's really, it's amazing. Yeah. You can't, you can't like, do it in the news, you know? No. Because now it's like what, maybe once a week you might get a hard-hitting interview. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I haven't ever seen really a hard interview on the seven o'clock shows, but I I might be wrong. Oh no, I mean, I mean, in, at any time slot. Right. Yeah. So I'm thinking there's been some good NZ Q and A's. Q and A, yes, of yeah. course. But that's ghettoized programming. You know, that's in the Sunday ghetto or the Saturday ghetto, and right, no one watches it. Yeah, the audiences are very slow, uh, small. Even yeah. though the talent is often very good, the interviews are great. Yeah. yeah. Well. Um, all looking up, all looking rosy then. 
<laughs> Very somber. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, we might tie it up there. But thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast, Dita. Thank you very much for having me, you and Ginny. It's been great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and cheers for, for co-hosting with me um, uh, with your expertise on this as well, Ginny. No worries. Happy to be here. It was really great. That's been another midweek episode of One of 200. If you've enjoyed it, share, like, comment, come and say hi to us on Twitter or Blue Sky. We're on both now and on Instagram. Uh, and we've got the Patreon in the summary, as usual, if you want to donate and help us out uh, continuing to build progressive independent media in Aotearoa. We'll be back on the weekend with some current events. We'll see you then. If artifices are denied, live in a pointless life, but I'm learning all your lessons. Fucking politics is no distinction. The words are now. It's paid with good intentions. And I'll admit that I'm at a loss for what to say when they quote this as a cost we ought to I live amongst the people every day In this vindictive, forgetful fucking rain It feels like we're on the road to hell